Hi, how are you doing? I think this is working. Uh, I have my phone here. Othello can text me if there's any issues. How are you doing today? My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 130 of my live chat. Uh, it is the 8th of September. It is actually about an hour after it was announced that the Queen of England died. I don't have a strong opinion about the Queen one way or the other, but uh, today is the live chat. So we'll get to anything you want to get to. Of course, in about 48 hours, a little bit more than we're going to have UFC 279, Nate Diaz's likely final UFC fight. We'll talk about Nate. We'll talk about uh, Jake Paul versus Anderson Silva, which I think is actually far and away the most interesting thing he's done, certainly up to this point in combat sports. Um, we can talk about Hamza Chimaev. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about your chat as much as it is mine. So thumbs up on the video. Please hit subscribe. And if you follow me on Twitter, you might notice that I said there was going to be some new features today. So let me give you an example of what some of those features might look like. If you you are certainly, what, here's how this works. We go for about an hour or so, right? I'll do free questions. I put a thread up about 24 hours beforehand. You guys fill it up. And then whatever gets ranked at the top, I'll go to. A couple new features we're going to try today. First things first, we're going to try looking at the questions in real time. It'll look something like this. Like that. You see? Actually, I don't do it quite like this. So now you'll be able to see the questions in real time. That's the first thing that we're going to do. The second thing that we're going to try is if you actually put a donation in, which you are certainly under no obligation to do, but if you do, I'm going to make sure your question gets on screen just like this one did. Uh, this is not the nicest question, but you get the idea. So a couple of extra bells and whistles here. I don't know if this is a permanent thing we're going to try. I don't know if this is a thing that you like. We we are trying this to upgrade the experience for you, to make it more dynamic. The chat's kind of been what it's always been for a, a long time. I'd like to try and upgrade to some of these features if we can. All right, so without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? And we're back. There you go. Um, okay, so... That's how this goes. About an hour or so of free questions. If you put in a donation, I will get to it at the end, and your question will get on the screen. That's assuming you don't go say things like, hey, um, you know, who's your favorite, uh, <laughs> I don't know, some kind of jokey bullshit where the name is like IP Freely or something. Yeah, I won't put that up on there, but if you got a good faith one, if you put it, again, under no obligation to do that, but if you do, we're going to put a couple extra bells and whistles there, okay? All right, so without further ado... Let's um, let's get to your questions, all right? It's about 3.04, so I'll go to about 4.04 or so with the free questions. Let's get going. All right. And again, if you don't like this, by all means, tell me, and we can go back to the original one. It's it's. I don't know that there's a better system. I've been looking into it. Again, I don't know if this is the system that we'll, we'll end up staying with. This is a trial episode, and you can see some other tabs up here. I have the, let's see, I got the Nate Diaz. This is the fight metric stats, rankings in case we need them, the topology page in case we want to look at other fights on there. And then, of course, here are your questions. Folks sometimes ask, where do they go? It's the, uh, it's the community tab at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. That's sort of the answer there. All right? All right. Uh, so let me put my glasses on because your boy is blind as fuck. By the way, feeling a lot better two weeks later. Um, 
I saw some people who obviously had a lot of trouble with science in high school making some proclamations about why I was or was not sick. I would very much caution you to not listen to them. But either way, let's get this party started. Okay. All right. First things first. I'm going to go and actually, you know what? I'll hit it refresh one more time. And then I'll go to these questions. All right. So this is the order in which it's presented to me. Do you think Nate's late fight cardio is overstated? He has been past the third round just three times in his career, all being losses. And only one of those fights did he do anything of note in the later rounds, rocking Leon. This whole idea that Nate beats anyone in an unlimited time fight scenario seems unsupported with what we have seen. Diaz has only won two of his six championship rounds he has ever seen in his entire career. Not a bad question, actually, but I would somewhat disagree with how you are framing part of this. And sure enough, as soon as I go live on air, BC starts texting me like crazy. A um, couple things. You could go back to the Dong Hyung Kim fight. Dong Hyung Kim clearly won the first two rounds of that fight. And then I thought was losing the third one pretty badly. If that had been a five round, not badly, but I thought Nate had won that one cleanly. If you have a fourth and fifth round, it's hard to say exactly what might have happened. But this idea that he would not have come on in the fifth round or you know, in the championship round seems speculative to me, especially given the trajectory of how that fight went. That being said, when you overall look at his career, is there evidence that he is much more dangerous late than not? It's not like his performance elevates to a substantial degree once you hit the portion of those rounds. I don't think that's quite the right way to look at it. Um, but what I would say is perhaps the right way to look at it or perhaps a different way to look at it would be that one, you can find individual fights that were contained in three rounds where he was surging late and was obviously did not get the decision, but could have gotten it. The other part is not that he gets higher level, but it's that, uh, and, and there is, by the way, the accumulative weight of whatever punishment he has or fatigue he has suffered in the first three rounds. But a lot of guys have a pretty substantial drop-off in the fourth or fifth where they are just not capable of finding themselves in that way where they have to kind of apportion offense or they become a little bit much more defensive or something like that. I just don't think that's a fair criticism of Nate. I think what you would see with him is the reason why he rocked Leon in the fifth is because he still had the presence of mind to throw that one too. That's a favorite. Uh, it's a very simple, but it's a favorite uh, time-tested weapon of his. He was using it to great effect against Michael Johnson. So the point I'd like to say is, Yes. Does he become some kind of cardio monster in that moment in time? No, he doesn't do that. Uh, and of course, there's going to be some uh, appreciable loss of ability given that you have 15 minutes of fighting already ahead of time, particularly with the cuts he might experience given some of his scar tissue, but that he is still a very significant threat, that he does have enough cardiovascular conditioning, that he doesn't really have to apportion his offense. He still might be behind the eight ball, but the the typical drop-off in performance, I don't think he quite experiences in exactly the same way. So his experience, his his performance level doesn't rise, but there's enough left over in that fourth and fifth, given his cardiovascular reserves and his sort of battle-tested abilities at this point, where he can still be um, a considerable threat later. So it depends on what you mean. He's past about all those being losses, anything to note, except rocking Leon. I mean, that's a fairly big thing. 
this whole idea that Nate beats anyone in unlimited time fight scenario. Yes, that is very overstated. It's not like he kind of holds on for the thir 15 minutes and then steps on the gas super hard in the 16th minute and he's taking everyone to school. That is very much overstated. But in the typical ways in which a, a fighter experiences performance decline in the fourth and the fifth, while he does end up taking a lot of beatings, particularly I think more recently, um, I would still consider him an ab above usual threat especially with submissions late in the fourth and the fifth relative to some of his other competitors, especially I think if you weighed like his composure after getting beat on uh, relative to some of his uh, peers, I don't think they would have nearly the same level of composure or cardiovascular reserves. So doesn't turn him into, he's not He-Man or something like that, but uh, he's still very much a, a threat in certain ways. All right. Uh, hi, Luke. Let's go to this one. Hi, Luke. Uh, Diaz is stealing the attention that this could be his last fight, but with Tony's latest run on a loss at the weekend, could, uh, could we see, uh, there's no we there, could we see him retire or leave the UFC? We know Nate could fight Jake Paul. What do you think Tony's options are with a loss? Thanks for everything that you do. Yeah, good question. Um, I don't, listen, if you've watched this chat for some time, then you probably have some idea what I'm going to say, which is you got to be real careful about dismissing fighters um before it's truly obviously you know incontestable that they're done I, I would just be very very careful with that but at the same time what i would say with tony is i just don't think everything is in his favor let's look at his record here if we can for just a second so let me pull this up let me pull up the topology page here's tony ferguson right so we look at tony ferguson here so he has the Gaethje loss, which again, to me, was a major turning point. That was a huge beating that he took. Didn't did him no favors. Oliveira didn't whip him in the same way, but we know with the limb extension and everything else, it wasn't great. The Benil Dariush one, again, not, uh, I think, not the most epic beating, but, you know, um, decisive enough. And then the Chandler one was really kind of bad. Um, obviously, he got put out completely. No one had ever done that before. What you're looking for is a couple of things. First of all, how old is he? He is 38, you know, and um, his birthday is obviously going to be in February. So he's going to be 39 fairly soon-ish is what I would say. But he's 38 years old, which is not a great place to be in any of the weight classes except heavyweight, number one. That's the first thing I'd say. Number two is what you notice is, yes, this Gaethje loss was a bad loss. But what I would say is that the damage has accumulated and now it has gotten to a point where he's getting put out completely. So what you're looking for in some of the scenarios like this is, is there an escalation in the problems? I would argue that there appears to be, appears to be an escalation of the problems. Now, what I would say is going to 170, putting less strain on his body through the cut. I don't mind that. I think Li Jian Lang is certainly no walk in the park. But if Tony Ferguson is going to show life in this fight and fight in a way that we sort of under actually i don't think he even needs to fight in fact i would recommend not fighting the way that we're typically accustomed to seeing him fight part of that was banking on the idea that he could absorb damage in ways that was ultimately inadvisable and not scalable over time look at what arlovsky did he had to switch things up in his style to make it much more to slow the fight down much more distance based much more defensively sound much more defensively thoughtful the entire way through i think you're going to need to see something like that from tony ferguson fighting the way he has been all this time yeah it's been exciting and it's been incredible and he's done you know just some of the most marvelous things you could ever ask of a fighter but 
that style also requires him to absorb damage in a way that I don't know is scalable at this point in time. So uh, he could make it a grappling match with Li Jing Lang. I think that's one thing he could do. He could find ways to strike, and I guess we'll have to see exactly what he wants to do. But like, what happens with a loss here, five in a row? It would depend on the nature of the loss, for sure. But if Li Jing Lang puts him out, for example, that would be a really, really, really very much a bad sign. I mean, the red flag of all red flags. Um, if you were to just sort of lose a ho-hum fight by itself, you could see the UFC potentially continuing to do business with him. But like, I, you know, I've seen people kind of wonder, hey, is a is a run for the title 170 possible? Again, we don't have enough evidence to firmly conclude that that is impossible. But my early read is that that is highly unlikely, and he would have to show something very dramatic in this contest with Li Jingling, more than just getting a win, which by itself would be very impressive. But I think more than just eking out a win, he would have to do something very special, um, which we will see if he can do. We will see if he can do. But uh, the deck is stacked against him in a lot of different ways, um, to be quite clear. All right, let's see what else we got here. Uh, let's see. There's a good argument that Gon has the best movement at heavyweight. We're talking about this one. There's a good argument that Gon has the best movement at heavyweight. Given the fact that Jones hasn't made his heavyweight debut, how would you rate his footwork among the elite of the heavyweight division, assuming it transfers up from light heavyweight? And why is it impossible to find footage of Till's assumed Muay Thai K1 championship run? I don't know. I've not looked into the Till issue. I couldn't tell you much about that, but you're asking how would Jones's footwork compare with the elite of the heavyweight division, assuming it transfers up from light heavyweight? Well, first of all, that's a major assumption. That's the first thing I'd say because, um, you know, he's going to have significantly more bulk than he once did. You might be saying, well, how relevant is that as a Christ on crutches? I mean, dude, it's like, I don't, they, no one calls, no one texts until I get on air and then they all call. You're like, oh, put your phone on silent, but I can't really do that because it could be an emergency. So keep that in mind. Um, the thing I'd like to say about this is look at Luke Rockhold's footwork from 185 to 205, which is not even as dramatic a, a change in body type that Jones made. I mean, it completely changed his striking, right? It's not like the weapons that Luke was good at before stopped being, he stopped being good at them. What it did was it changed, like, obviously made a huge impact on his mobility. And it to me, at that one, it was just one fight at 205. It devastated his defense. His entire defense was predicated on uh, distance, placement, and getting a lean off to the side. Um, right? Doing that sort of thing where he's just getting out of the way. He wasn't very good in the pocket at slipping and countering. There was some covering up, that kind of thing. But in general, it was leaning out and then circling out and then setting up something from the attack there. It, it, he, he was so flat-footed at 205. He was much more muscular, but he was so flat-footed at 205, he wasn't the same guy at all. So this idea that, like, well, he, assuming he just transfers up, it wasn't like John was bouncing around like Robert Whitaker. He was always somewhat flat-footed. What I would say is his footwork is very good at 205. It's very good. It is, uh, it's economical. There's not a lot of wasted motion. He's very good at keeping his weight under him for maximum uh, power. I don't think he's super heavy-handed, but he gets a lot out of his strikes because he always has his balance. He has good balance, very good balance at 205. 
Um, obviously, he's got good range management. He's got those long 84-inch reach. He's got the long arms. Like, there's a lot he can do with that. Um, but it's and he's good at setting angles. Um, he's good at getting people to transfer defense, which is not exactly the same question you're asking about footwork. So listen, if he's doing that at heavyweight, where he doesn't even need to be quite as fast and and fleet of foot, and you know, he's got some pivoting skills as well off the front foot. Um, if he can bring that to bear at at heavyweight, then yeah, that's going to be he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. What I would just caution is not to expect the same type of footwork, but that whatever adapted style he has based on the bulk. Again, he already had an economical style, so I do think some of it will translate up. But I I think it'd probably be foolish to say it'd be the same. I think whatever bulk he has, he's probably going to be around. I'm going to guess two forty, two fifty. When it's all said and done, somewhere in that ballpark, like a big, you know, football tight end, um, I do think his footwork is going to be probably different. Um, I think he will be a little bit slower. I think he'll little be a little bit more mindful of entries uh, because his exit won't be as quick. Um, we'll have to see. But yes, there are reasons to believe that his footwork, as it stands at light heavyweight. That some of that can be brought up again if it was if he was really like a wonder wonder boy type fighter you know which would be the opposite of kind of what john is then i would have a little bit more concern um but he's very good about identifying range manipulating it using it um setting it getting into inside of it when he needs to getting outside of it when he needs to getting at angles when he needs to pivoting again pivoting off the front foot he's quite good at having his power under him not not a lot of wasted motion it's good but I don't know. You're putting that much extra weight. You can't. I mean, just go for a walk normally, like walk 10 minutes and then go and put a 40 pound pack on and see how different your, your gait is, how you apportion your weight. It, and again, you might be like, oh, well, it takes time to get used to that. Yes, of course. But even then your body just won't react the same. So that's why he's, I think that's probably wisely why he's taking all this time, but it's about adapting a new system, not just being like, oh, I'm going to be the same fighter I was at 205 up, you know, 40, 50 pounds extra. Like that doesn't, uh, uh-uh, that doesn't work that way. All right, let's see here. Oops. Let's see. Uh, not enough people are talking about this, but with welterweight being tied up at the moment with Leon versus Kamaru 3 needing to happen, do you see a scenario? where instead of making Hamzat wait or take another fight at welterweight, they put him in there against whoever the middleweight champ is after Izzy and Pereira fight. No, I don't. I don't see Hamzat or the UFC wanting to wait a year or so for the Leon Kamaru trilogy to end before putting Hamzat in a title fight. Middleweight doesn't have an eye-popping contender at the moment. Hamzat could be that guy if he beats Nate. All right, now they're forcing me to do this. So, sorry. Yeah, no, I don't see that at all. I don't see that scenario as even remotely likely. Mm-mm. No, I. you've got Robert Whitaker sitting there at just more deserving of a title shot than anyone else at 185. Certainly, by, I mean, obviously, Pareto's going to get it, but I mean, after UFC 281, Whitaker's just waiting there. So um, if Izzy wins, he may go to 205, in which case... At that point, you could do Whitaker. I guess you could do Whitaker Hamzat if you wanted to. There might be some interest for that. That seems possible. If Pereira wins, then they're probably going to give Whitaker the title shot or Izzy gets a rematch. So there's that. So, I mean, I guess there's some kind of scenario where they could sneak him in, but I I doubt it. Also, what I would say is, 
and this is going to sound kind of crazy, but if Nate Diaz beats Hamzat, which again is unlikely, very unlikely, but if Nate does it, you're going to sit here and tell me the UFC wouldn't consider giving him a title shot. Mm, they might, they might. I don't know if Nate wants it, which is the other part that changes the equation, but dude, he beats Hamzat and that blows up that division and everyone's trajectory thereafter for to a considerable degree, a considerable degree, which I realize is, you know, I, they might give, they might give the title shot to Nate ahead of Kamaru potentially, or put Nate versus someone else in an interim contest. I mean, there's a lot of ways where if Nate wins, especially like finishes Hamzat at 170 pounds, they, they might, they might just restructure everything on account of him. I would not look past that. At 185, he could sneak in there in some kind of way, but I would not see that as likely, no. Uh, are we ever going to get the high drunk Luke and BC room service diaries back? At this point, it just seems like room service diaries is a serious fighter interview with some BC innuendos thrown in. Yeah, we haven't quite figured out the new format as much as we would have liked. I, with the other stuff, the old stuff, I mean, basically we had some meetings and some folks warned, warned us about our careers. <laughs> doing that that's the long story short on that they're, they're like you know what could happen to us if we continue doing them um so you know could you get them in the future yes i do think there's a possibility but not on any kind of regular clip no not any kind of regular feature could we ever return those it just would not make sense for our career at this stage we've built a lot and it believe it or not it can get blown up way easier than you think it can you can spend 20 years building a career. You can destroy it in 20 minutes. It's not that hard. It is much easier to destroy what you've built than it is to build it. Much, much, significantly easier. Significantly. You can be your own saboteur far faster than you can be your own, you know, foreman of the construction project or whatever the proper analogy is. It's So because of those concerns and because that's a real thing that we have to think about, um, could we bring it back on a regular basis? Probably not. But but to answer the question a little bit more forthrightly, could we do better with the current format to make it a little bit more, le to bring it a little more levity and in a way that I think would be in keeping with some of those traditions? Yes. Um, but we're still trying to get, we do them so infrequently and we do them now in ways where like we're taking a lot of like requests incoming. We haven't like, We've not really done a great job of identifying targets that we want and going to get them. So we've done, we've done that a little bit, but I think as we do more of that or we have repeat guests or something like that, I think you're going to get more of the kind of thing you're talking about. Godzilla just got home, by the way, from school. Okay. Let's see. Uh, Luke, if Ferguson loses in any way, even a super close battle... Do you think it's the end of the road for him in the UFC? If he loses a super close battle, I do not think it's the end of the road for him in UFC. I do not. I think a super close battle would get people to say, hey, you know, probably you have to manage our expectations, but like departure from the organization or there's no more appetite. No, I think what would have to happen is something bad would have to happen to Tony for that to happen, right? Like getting really beat up again, getting mangled, um, getting put out, right? Getting put to sleep either with either with chokes or a strike or something like that. 
that would, I think, cause people to be like, uh, I'm not sure what my appetite is this for anymore. But if he has a super close battle, I mean, look, let's look at the rankings here real quickly, right? So where are we in this? The rankings have at welterweight, they've got, he's ranked at 14th. You know, listen, would it spell that you can't beat the number 14 guy that at 38 years old you can reliably be counted upon as a future title contender? Probably not, right? Probably not. That's probably not a thing that you could do. But if you lose to the 14, 14th ranked guy, that doesn't mean you can't have some kind of role in the UFC. The other part is like, what exactly does he want? You go back to Jim Miller. What does Jim Miller want? Jim Miller is not out here trying to fight the very best guys. He's just trying to get fights that are good challenges for him, that keep him busy, that are commensurate with the level that he's got now. And he's pretty happy with that. And that's a great thing to do. So really part of it is just, you know, what does Tony want? But Tony looks like, I mean, I think I saw I, I saw him on Embedded saying, you know, obviously the, the goal is always the title. It's a big goal. That's a big goal even when you're 25 and fresh or 29 and, and you know, entering your prime. That's still a massively difficult goal. So we'll see. We'll see how things go. But what I would say is if he just loses a super close battle, I think that there's probably a future for him. Not even then a limited one, but some kind of future in the UFC. If he loses and it's bad, like it's a really bad loss, or whatever that could mean, I think that's when some of these bigger questions are like, okay, right? Because at that point, you'd have this escalation in violence that he's experiencing after this, you know, horrible event, which was the Justin Gaethje fight. And then you would have him switching weight classes, right? So switching camps, like trying to do something. And by the way, that's the other part too. Like it takes time for a coach and their their fighter to really build a meaningful, lasting and fruitful connection. Like just after however many weeks it's been, that may not be enough time. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to hedge it. And this is why Dana, I think, is right on fight nights to be like, hey, I don't make decisions about that kind of stuff on fight night, usually about matchmaking. But, um, you know, obviously the scenarios where, as I mentioned, where things could turn poorly for him or the ones where um, he gets really... He gets really beat up. But I would just really caution. Listen, if you're a Tony fan, I'm not trying to rain on your parade or ruin your day. That's not really what this is about. But what I do want you to have is just be somewhat realistic about this. You know, I don't know what's going to happen on Saturday. You don't know what's going to happen on Saturday. Nobody does. Nobody does. But the, 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 the context in which Tony is trying to operate is an extremely difficult one. He's got nearly decades, plural, of abuse. So just physical abuse that he's tolerated. He's on a, the worst losing streak of his career in which he got fully put out in a way he had never been before. He's 38 years old. Now he's going up a weight class, which he's had some success in this weight class. That That's relevant as well. It should be noted. But, you know, it's a question of like changing weight classes, 38 years old, 170 pounds. You're fighting a, a top 15 guy in the world. Like, that's a tough assignment. That's a tough assignment. And I think we should all just be realistic about that if we can. Let's see here. Have you noticed how there is now only one male UFC champion that has a grappling-based style? Do you think it's just a coincidence, or do you think the meta is changing? All right, well, let's look at the champions with just the grappling-based style. So, number one, Figueredo's a little mixed, but I would call him as mostly, well, certainly has a grappling background. So, you know, is he exclusively a ground operator in that way? No, but I think it's a big key portion of his offense, number one. 
Aljamain Sterling, again, well-rounded, but grappling is sort of his base. Volkanovsky, striking is more his base. Fair enough, I wouldn't call him a grappling-based fighter, but lightweight there isn't one, but it's Charles Oliveira, who obviously is now well-rounded, but his background is grappling. Leon Edwards, largely striking. Israel, largely striking. Uh, I think it's pronounced Yuri. Some people are telling me I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, kind of all over the place, largely striking. Francis, largely striking. Amanda Nunes, uh, largely striking. Carla, mostly wrestling. And then Valentina Shevchenko, well-rounded, by the way, has wins off of her back from guard, but is largely striking base. So what I, the first thing I'd say is the nature of your question was about male fighters, but even then it's not quite right because you've got Figueredo, Sterling, and Oliveira, where there's a big portion of that, that grappling is what they do. Of course, Violetta came home and started crying because what else would she do, right? Um, so first thing is I would just sort of object to the nature of the question. Uh, but yes, I do think that you're, be it's been going on for a while, but I think that it used to be the case that a lot of fighters, particularly like in the Matt Hughes era, where people wanted to be like really, really good at wrestling and then have enough striking on the feet if they needed it. Um, and I think that that has, and this has been ongoing for some time, it's certainly shifted now where it'd be largely having a striking game and then grappling or a ground game if you need it, if it's relevant for a particular contest, a particular moment or exchange or whatever the case may be, right? That's what, that's what, that's what the meta has overall shifted in that way. You're asking me, has it shifted even more from beyond that, which that meta I'm talking about has been in place for quite some time. No, no, I don't think it has shifted any more than that. I mean, I think in general, because the fight starts standing, because the ground game... Well, you know what? I'll say this, and this is something I've been talking about. Obviously, the fight starts standing. There's been a shift away from grappling in general, at least more balance in general, for quite some time. Uh, but the other part is, I'm, I've said it before, dude, I don't think the current unified rules and the way in which they ask grappling to count, I don't think it's going to do the sport any favors people think that because the judging system now is process oriented that ultimately you're going to get if you follow that process more optimal outcomes and certainly any kind of process that has been ironed out is going to be at least somewhat helpful i don't think i don't mean to suggest that the scoring criteria is in any way you know no better than just sort of randomly picking winners and losers i don't think that but I do think that even though, it, don't let the fact that it's process-oriented blind you from the question of whether or not what is baked into the process is an appropriate consideration. Namely, how much grappling doesn't count as much anymore and how much labor-intensive grappling is in order to get a result. And unless you're really you know, using grappling for heavily taxing scenarios on your opponent, like riding the back for long periods of time, or ending up in some kind of fight ending scenario, you've got a choke, the limb is extended, whatever the case is there, that that really the rest of it doesn't matter. To me, that is just so fucking wrong. I very much disagree with how that is looked at. And I do think that that will play a role, whether or not that's a, a variable in determining, you know, why more of the champs have more of a striking base than they used to um, is probably not it's too early to say. I think what you've just picked up on is a trend that's been in place for a long time and has finally now reached fuller levels of the sport from the champion to the journeyman to the middleman and every place in between where they kind of realize that unless you've got a really, really, really great dynamic ground game, your best bet is largely to strike it out and you know use the ground game if you need it. Some guys are a little bit different, obviously. Um, but that's a process that's been in place for a long time. The next step... I am curious about that. And by the way, speaking of meta, which is a different consideration than the word meta used here, 
I had some pushback from folks about my Mark Zuckerberg take. I can't believe some of y'all. I cannot believe some of y'all. Dude, there is this... I can't... (laughs) Mark Zuckerberg is a tech oligarch who does not give a fuck about you or really MMA at all in any kind. And because he is rich and powerful, people are like, oh, it's fucking cool that Mark Zuckerberg likes MMA. Are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? There is this weird pull socially, particularly in this sort of like, you know, rise and grind hustle culture where the people who are at the top of the food chain, whether it's by a function of hustling the, uh, you know, the competition or not is somewhat irrelevant, but it's just, you know, because it's all based on hierarchy that the higher you sit above it in the process of grinding your way there is sort of seen as admirable, but still it's a, it's a, it's a hierarchy sort of based worldview where these people who sit at the top all of a sudden hold more value without really regarding the fact that the dude's actually like a tech oligarch whose company has, you know, he would like to say that, you know, Facebook does more good than harm, but I don't even know if that's true. That seems awfully simplistic and more to the point is done a fuck load of harm uh, all across the world. You can look at places in Southeast Asia, including the Philippines where, um, Duterte was able to weaponize the system against critics against the government, causing all kinds of problems, not merely related to um, the promotion of some of his more inappropriate interests, but the deaths of people, in fact, groups, journalists, activists, any kind of somebody who was trying to challenge his power. Um, You can look at other places, again, in other parts of the world where you've seen similar dynamics where Facebook has kind of upended the social fabric or led to the spread of misinformation against marginalized groups, the Rohingya uh, Muslims in particular. I mean, you can go on and on how much Facebook has been weaponized here. And by the way, wasn't everyone really mad about the Hunter Biden story? It it wasn't just Twitter that censored it, by the way. It was was a sort of a tech, you know... Uh, circle jerk around the whole thing. And now because he likes MMA, we're willing to look the other way. You guys have got to be fucking kidding me with this. Dude, you don't want a guy like that anywhere near your sport. You don't want to welcome him in. You want that guy the fuck out of here. We're going to welcome in an incredibly wealthy and powerful person into our little bubble because it's cool that a wealthy and powerful person wants to be inside the bubble. Get the fuck out of here. He is a tech oligarch. He doesn't give a shit about your life. Doesn't care whether you live or die. Not sure he really cares about the poisonous effect that his company has had on the world. Or he's certainly taken it into consideration in, in, in ways that you know you could see clear evidence of reformation within the organization. They know. They know that they have polluted um, our information pipelines. They know what they've done. More so Google at this point in terms of undercutting um, the role of uh, actually valuable media, even in our own market, but through with their usurpation of ad dollars and everything else in between, like they have been, you know, maybe calling them a cancer in society is a little bit strong, but they have been not great in a lot of meaningful respects. And people are like, yeah, this is fucking great. Be consistent, be consistent. Are you a fan of the tech overlords? who have an enormous amount of influence and say over the kinds of information we get, many ways unregulated, not for the better part, but um, without any kind of serious government constraint on the monopoly, by the way, which is another problem in, in the tech space. We're willing to just look the other way because this fucking nerd bozo just happens to like MMA and trains at a white belt level. Get the fuck out of here with this. I couldn't be more disappointed in the people in the sport. Like, yeah, this is great. 
No, it is not. No, it is not. And, and you're wondering why in MMA in particular, this is true where you have like belt promotion culture. And again, there's all the social hierarchy based on power and status. You're wondering why in MMA or in combat sports more generally, they just invite whoever into the world to celebrate why so-and-so is, I'm not going to put Zuckerberg on par with, you know, world dictators. I think that's probably a little bit extreme, but you know, nevertheless, not having any discretion about who we invite because as long as they're powerful and rich, gee, isn't that cool? Man, get the fuck out of here with that nonsense. Want no part of it, not interested in it. That dude has not part of a healthy society, whether it's for, listen, obviously I can't control his own interests. He can like what he likes, but this like, oh, this was really cool and nifty. Let's bring him in. Get, what the fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? A guy who has sat at the helm of an organization that has been pumping very serious misinformation into media ecosystems all over the world to help tyrants, to help dictators, to help people who are going after marginalized populations, to undo social fabric, to name any other problems with what he's done related to domestic media survival in its own ecosystem. I could go on and fucking on. And because he likes MMA, oh, this is nifty. No, no, it's not. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, it's not. You're not consistent. You are not consistent if on the one hand you are claiming that you are really sincerely concerned about tech oligarchs and what power they have in our society. And then you look the other way because one of those said tech oligarchs happens to be an MMA enthusiast. You are a contradiction. Nothing you say makes sense after that point. Stop fucking doing it. All right. Let's go back to your questions. Sorry, I just couldn't believe some of the reaction. My mentions are always filled with, what about this tech oligarch doing this? And what about our tech overlords doing this? And then this fucking bozo gets out there and throws the most, you know, I've been to class three months type of punches and kicks. And everyone's like, wow, isn't that fucking cool? <laughs> what? What? What are you talking about? It's the opposite of cool. It made my fucking skin crawl. All right. Luke, I was a bit puzzled. Sorry. I was a bit puzzled that you and BC were discussing bands that rebounded after losing their front man and you not bringing up Cannibal Corpse. Yeah, fair enough. Going from Chris Barnes to Corpse Grinder. Did you just not think about it or are you not a fan of Corpse Grinder? I was more thinking about rock bands, but yes, that would be a big one. That would be a very big one because... Uh, Actually, I like Corpse Grinder a little bit more than Chris Barnes. I know some folks, like a lot of folks like Barnes better, but Corpse Grinder is great. His his solo album, I got to tell you, I thought it was surprisingly good. It's a little more hard rockish than pure metal, which is going to sound crazy because, you know, he talks about like maiming people and putting them into acid vats and shit, which, you know, not exactly like radio friendly play. But if you listen to the way the music is constructed, it's definitely metal, but it's a little bit more like, you know, the death metal in your face riff fests that you get on cannibal corpse it's a little more slowed down than that so it's got a bit of a different flair all right let's go back uh hey luke could you go into detail as to why you thought gone regressed as a striker from his last performance he seemed more willing to take risks and was backed up to the fence easier than one would like but he also displayed a great jab ring craft and rhythm do you think this was a one-off regressive performance or do you think this will continue? So let me be very clear about this. I don't think his performance is striking regressed from his last MMA fight per se to this one. What I would say is 
from his Muay Thai days to this one. You can see he's had to make some accommodations. Also, he was, it turns out he was injured. I think his right hand was fucked up after, or he, he revealed that his right hand was fucked up after the fight. And so um, I think part of the situation was, was that. But uh, what I would say is that, like, I, I really disagreed with BC's analysis yesterday on the show, which was he was like, oh, this guy's finally willing to go for it. I don't really see that as the meaningful way to look at it. To me, what you got was a guy who, you know, was there probably some pressure to perform for the for the native crowd and because it was a big main event and, you know, UFC's debut in Paris and all that? Yeah, they're probably, I think that probably played a role. Again, who knows what, what role the hand played in ultimate strike selection. But it seems to me that he was just willing to accept more risk and was willing to be... Um, and was willing to invite danger in ways that I don't think he used to do, particularly if you look at some of his older um, pure striking bouts, right? Like when BC sees that as evidence of growth, I, I, I think I see that as evidence of trying to weigh competing interests in that moment. I don't see that as growth. Oh, well, he got hit and he got back up. Yeah, that was certainly great that he was able to show resilience in that moment. That was great. Like everything about that is commendable. But like, would you look at this fight and be like, oh, his striking has gotten better through the course of his UFC run? I don't think that's the conclusion I would come to. Still very good, still probably the very best in that division in terms of stick and move. Like, I, I don't think it's in any way like regressed in some kind of way where it's like, oh, well, now the rest of the division's catching up. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean at all. But like, is, you know, do I think that like over the course of his last four fights, this is evidence of it escalating? No, I think he thought he had an opponent who he could take risks with. He did. He paid for it a little bit, a little bit. And then in the end, he got a, a quicker finish as a consequence. You know, um, not a massive degradation in ability. That's not my argument, but not evidence that like he's, you know, just putting, like he's gotten so much better that they can't touch him at all. In fact, it seems to me a little bit less, which is why I use the word regression. There just doesn't seem to be quite the same sharpness, perhaps intentionally, and again, perhaps also by a function of the injury that you would have seen um, from, you know, if I think if he was really minding his P's and Q's and he was really trying to use his abilities to the best of, of what he could, there seemed to be a decline from that. All right. Uh, did you find any of AJ McKee's comments during the last room service diaries troubling? Yeah, I sure did. Can't put my finger on it exactly, but he seems super distant and unfocused. Um, well, he, I mean, he straight up admitted he was having, he had a mental breakdown. First of all, the thing that troubled me was when he was like, yeah, you know, you just have to keep it to yourself. Like men of the world. And I told him this after the show, by the way, but men of the world, you do not have to keep and women too, anybody, but I know I, my audience is mostly men. It is bullshit that you have to keep something to yourself. I don't care what your friends tell you. I don't care what figures you revere tell you. I don't care what a family member tells you. That's bullshit. It's bullshit. You do not have to keep anything to yourself. And in fact, that's probably a really bad idea. Now, do you have to go around telling sob stories to everyone you come across? Of course, that's not the answer either. The, if you wanted to keep things private um, for any number of reasons, then that's okay too. The argument is not that you like, oh, well, keeping a secret is bad, so the answer must be to broadcast it to everyone. That's not the point either. The point is you do need to talk about it with someone. You need to talk about it with a with a with somebody who can provide some real help, um, a social worker, 
a if you're in school, by the way, a guidance counselor, um, a you know some kind of therapist if you can uh, afford one or if you have access to one. But these are the kinds of people you need to talk to, right? They are the ones who can help you make sense of why do you feel the way you do and what's a reasonable path of actions I can take that help me out of here. Like, how do I understand how I feel? You think you understand what you feel, why you feel. Oh, I'm feeling sadness. It must be for this reason. You don't actually know that, right? Here's what I mean. You could be right about some part of that. But understanding where it's coming from, the way it's how you're framing it, the way you give it significance, the things you are ignoring that also contribute to it. They what they help you do is they help you see the picture for what it is, and then put the pieces of a solution puzzle together, and then how you can then work on that on your way out. But like, let me just tell you straight up, this idea that you need to keep your problems to yourself. Listen again, some exercise discretion about what you share with others. That's probably fair, but. I've got mental problems and I'm just going to figure it out by keeping it to myself is bullshit. It's bullshit. It's not real. It's not true. It's certainly not your best options. I'm sure that somebody you know can name a situation where they did figure it out on their own. That is possible. In fact, the more you learn about yourself, the more you go to therapy, the more you can discover some, some of these things on your own. I think that's actually true. That can be valuable as well. But I've got to keep it to myself because men of the world don't tell their problems to others. It's bullshit. And I told AJ McKee after that, after the show, number one, just flat out that. The other thing I would say is, and again, we, we sort of discussed it. By the way, that was a really weird episode. Like, we were weird. He was weird. It was a weird dynamic. But the other part was, like, he was talking about we had like, no romantic interests at all. I mean, every, everyone's got to make their own choices about this. And fighters who want to be the very best in the world, they have to live, not like, again, everyone's going to be different. But they typically have to live in some kind of way that is, you know, monastic. Um, and whether that is good for your mental health long term, whether that is good for your your enjoyment, for some it might be. For some, I think they're going to find that they don't like that much. They like, they like it all that much. And maybe he discovered that portion of that kind of living, especially after a loss. He was sort of second guessing it a little bit. Like, I am missing out on these kinds of things. And again, I'm not here to say a, girl, a girlfriend is the answer. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But... I would just tell you in general, having a more balanced life is probably going to make on on balance more people happy. Um, that's just the reality. And when you deprive yourselves of those things, you can do that. It's not wrong. If, if it helps you meet your goal, it's not wrong. But I just want to be very clear. This idea that you need to keep problems to yourself, that especially if you're a man and men don't share their problems, bullshit, bullshit, not true at all. In fact, people who are telling you that are giving you super bad advice. Not true. Not true. Most people, when they're feeling a certain way, need to talk to someone qualified who can help them with it. You would be surprised how much that does for you. It's crazy how much it will do for you. And it might take time. It's not going to be easy. But it's much better, much better than being like, I can just figure this out on my own. You don't even know exactly what the nature of your problem is. How are you going to figure it out on your own? Especially if you're like you're him, you're 26, 27. Let me explain something to you, folks. We all think that at 27, and by the way, at 43, I'm sure I don't know shit either, but I know more than I did at 27 by a significant margin. You don't know shit about yourself at 27, especially if you've never gone through the process of inspecting it with somebody who's an outside expert who can inventory it as well with you and then help you see the roads that you've created in your mind that you travel down and whether or not these are dead ends. Like they, they can help with all of this stuff. So, yeah, there was a lot he said that I, but the, the part is that you're like, why don't you do something about it? Well, I did talk to him after the show. Um, but you got to remember, dude, like 
fighters tell me all kinds of crazy things. I mean, dude, they fight, they fist fight for a living, right? They're inherently, their risk assessment is not going to be the typical person's risk assessment, right? Just by definition, it's not going to be. Not in all cases, but I think in general, you're going to see that they're going to have a different level of risk assessment. Um, they usually have some kind of, you know, heterogeneous, but unusual politics, strange worldviews, whatever. Uh, I'm not saying that mine are normal. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying if you look at sort of what the typical American or whatever they're from thinks, they would probably be to some degree outside of that. Um, and, you know, they have to make certain sacrifices in their life that the rest of us don't have to make. And they have to make them in sometimes crazy, enduring ways. I don't know that that's good for them. You, My job is not to, like, manage their life. If I see, like, a real red flag where what he told me, like, I'll have to keep it to myself. That's a red flag where I feel like I have a responsibility to say something to him. But there's a lot of other crazy shit where it's like, it's not my fucking business. You know, it's not. It's not. And it's not my job to police them. It's not my job to to be their, like, mentor. They're not asking me to. So sometimes, like, what I've found is that, like, I have to let, I have to be accommodating of those differences as much as I can be red flag, red flag, right? Red flag. I'll, I'll intervene. But short of that, they just, they're going to have their own ideas and you have to let that be what it is. Like you don't know better for them, you know? Um, someone's asking about the NIL deals and the TV deals. Like, I, 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 do I think there needs to be more oversight in the way they're handled? Probably because it's also new, but I don't have a strong opinion about this. Uh, okay. Let's see. Gone seems to have a huge amount of power. He just chooses not to use it until he needs to do so. Probably true. Do you see him getting into more entertaining fights now that he experienced being knocked down? And do you see him changing his style in a similar way to what Fury did after the first Wilder fight? I don't think he's got the same kind of constitution that Fury does, nor the same kind of defensive prowess, quite frankly. So no, but um, especially if it's like a real close, high-risk high reward fight where, uh, you know, if he's fighting for a title, I don't expect that he would just open up, but if he's fighting someone, he's probably a lot better than he might, he might. Yeah, he might. Okay. Here's an interesting one. Let's go to this. Here's a rant. This person writes, I am fucking sick <laughs> of people saying, what if Diaz wins to me? This is so irresponsible. Really irresponsible to be considerate of possibility? I don't know how that's irresponsible. Diaz is probably the smallest guy Hamzat's ever fought, and while Hamzat is certainly the biggest guy Diaz has ever fought, Hamzat slept a 185-er in 20 seconds. Diaz has been stopped by his face falling off, and we're talking about, quote, takes it in the fourth or fifth. Again, I think that's somewhat overstated. Actually, a lot overstated. This person writes, I'm closer to the Dan Hardy side of the argument. I think Chimaev should be a minus 2,000. People need to watch Prime Diaz versus Roy McDonald and realize what they're paying for on Saturday. I don't disagree with a whole lot of that, except to say the following. Um, we went through this on the resume review. You guys probably saw this on Morning Combat. If you didn't, we put a lot of time into that one. We tried to get all the assets for all the fights that we could. I rewatched and took notes on everything as much as I could. Um we really put a lot of effort into it. Again, number one, he had four fights at 170. 
Rory Markham, who he, this is talking about Nate Diaz, who he beat the fuck out of, and Marcus Davis, who he beat the fuck out of. Now, I know what you're going to say. Those guys ain't Hamzat. In fact, those guys aren't Rory McDonald and Dong Hyung Kim, the two other welterweights that he fought. I realized that he's got the fight with McGregor. I'm talking like real welterweights. Um, and, you know, he got he got beat up real badly by Rory for the most part, especially in the third round when he was getting Matt returned constantly. But again, going back to Dong Hyun Kim, Dong Hyun Kim was better than him for the first two rounds. I thought Nate took the third, and God only knows what would have happened in the fourth and fifth. Kim was huffing and puffing. Okay. So I don't think welterweight is ideal for Nate. That is not my argument. In fact, my argument, as you guys heard on resume review, is what's the best Nate Diaz stretch of fights? Not what's your favorite win, because the Michael Johnson win could be your favorite one. Probably the Conor McGregor is going to be your favorite one. But what's his best stretch of wins? It was actually, in my judgment, when Nate Diaz left welterweight after those four fights, after Rory Markham, Marcus Davis, Dong Hyun Kim, and Rory McDonald, and then he goes back to 155, and he beats Takanori Gomi, and he beats him pillar to post in every dimension of the game. Then he beats Donald Cerrone, who was doing a decent job kicking the legs of the, of Nate Diaz, but not enough to really make it count because he got his ears boxed off. And then he followed up with the, the the guillotine choke over Jim Miller on national television. So back to back to back, two of those being finishes. I think he got bonuses with both of them and took it to Cowboy. Cowboy flipped him off at the beginning of that fight. And by the beginning of the third round, Nate Diaz returns the favor and Cowboy just looks at him and goes, yep, kind of got that one coming, didn't I? That's to me... He had he's had other good performances, even better ones than that. But that three fight stretch is his best, and to me, it's not coincidental that it happened at 155 pounds. I think Nate Diaz can fight at welterweight, but I think he is best suited for lightweight. So while I agree that Hamzat has had power that carried up a weight class, I don't think that Nate Diaz is. Well, I think he's very much outmatched in this contest. In general, at welterweight, listen to the way I'm saying this, in general, at welterweight, I don't think he's a lamb being led to the slaughter. I don't think he's suited for the weight class, but I think he's got a little bit more life there than people are giving him credit, even if I acknowledge that Hamzat is the massive favorite and deserves to be. I will also, on the other flip side, acknowledge that like this idea that like fourth and the fifth, is, or those are his best rounds, is somewhat unfair. But the two things I would say is, one, in the Kim fight, you could make a case that he could have done really well in the fourth and the fifth. The other one is you're talking about getting his face melted off. Well, what I would what I would say is Jorge Masvidal was beating him up real good. I think that's pretty fair. And that was a bad cut, but um, he was doing decently well in that third round. Decently well at times, anyway. And the point being is if that had gone to another – that fight had been in a different state, Dan Hardy made this argument, argument to me that night. I saw him in the hallway – at Madison Square Garden, and he was right, I think, when he was like, if that fight was in Vegas, that fight's not getting stopped. Like, they're going to just keep going. And so uh, it was a bad cut, and I'm not here to undermine, like, what Jorge did. Jorge largely beat him up. My only point is, like, you know, I think that there is some, there's a little bit of, like, listen, Hamza might go in there and just beat the fucking brakes off of him. And that would, that, that, that actually is probably your likeliest thing that happens. But I also feel like, one lesson I learned from doing the resume review was like Nate lost the fights that he lost. Like the other person was better that night, but there was this kind of what you end up getting is this inevitability talk where because it's kind of inevitable that Benson Henderson was not going to fold because it was inevitable that, you know, Rory was just too big and too strong 
that there's nothing redeeming about what Nate could do in those fights or in those weight classes or whatever the case, the, that, that situation. And what I found was that there was moments, or particularly in the clinch, I noticed that with Nate Diaz in the clinch is far better than I realized. And I got a much stronger appreciation for that, having watched this, the, all of those fights back again. So what I would say to you is it's totally fine to have, I think, a reasonable degree of alarm for this fight, to be a little bit worried about Nate. But there's a little bit, a little bit of infantilizing him that I don't support. I don't support. A minus 2,000 favorite, I don't really agree with. Again, Shemaev should go there and whoop up on him. He really should. Um, but I see people also talking about Nate like he is some, you know, that some street thug is going to fight someone disabled. That That is not, to me, MMA has way too many variables. It is way too chaotic. And for a guy who, certainly against Burns, fought as undisciplined as he did, he should still go in there and beat the shit of Nate Diaz. I think that's the likeliest possibility. But I think it's a little unfair to Nate to just infantilize him this way. Like he has no agency in this. And this is borderline reckless matchmaking. I mean, I guess we'll see what happens in the end. If he take, ends up taking a massive beating, then we can revisit this conversation and I'll walk it back. I, 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 fine. It won't be the first time I'd be wrong and, and it won't be the last. But... I don't know. I get a little bit, a little bit of a sense that there is this infantilization of Nate Diaz and what he's in for that while I recognize he is very much outgunned, um, I don't think it's unfair to be like, yeah, what if Nate Diaz wins? Do crazy shit in this sport happens when you least expect it. It's just reality. It's way too chaotic, way too many variables, way too difficult to scale, especially if you fight undisciplined. Hamzat might not, but if he does, it's worthy of consideration. All right. Um, let's see. Luke, let's imagine Nate gets the upset and finishes a tired Chimaev in the fifth round and shocks everyone. How do you see things playing out after that in regards to Nate's future in the UFC? Does he have leverage? Yeah, he'd have a shit ton. And what about happens to Chimaev? Would this affect his stock worth in the eyes of the MMA community? I think it would be devastating for Chimaev if he loses. I think if he wins and then he looks kind of bad or something, that would not be great for his image. But it would not be so devastating, right? Because it'd still be the W. You know, Nate would be the, the legend of Nate Diaz being tricky would play a role or something. There would be ways around it, right? It would not be so punishing as a albatross around his neck. No, I don't think that's true. But what would Nate get? Let me tell you something, folks. And I saw people being like, oh, you know, the UFC's been nice to Nate Diaz for a while. Folks, that is just not really true. It's true that they have expressed more public comity um, in the last few years than they have, you know, uh, over the last 10, let's say, right? That, that's probably true. But this idea that, like, absent what he said about Nate not being a needle mover, that they've largely been nice to him and, and that they've largely been very accommodating of him is just total bullshit. It's not true. I have noticed, I don't know if you guys have noticed it, like it seems to me that the relationship between D Team Diaz and UFC has thawed of late. Not just this week, but, you know, more recently, let's say. Um, and I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's an accident. Uh, I think that they would like a world where Nate resigns with them. I don't think it's all that likely. Um, and if Nate beats Hamzat, um, it's hard to say if it becomes more likely, but I think the UFC pursuit of him would be... I have, re I have reason to believe that if Nate Diaz wins, which again is very unlikely, but if he did, 
I have reason to believe that the UFC might pay him in a way that they've never paid anyone before, including Connor. Um, I think they would very much want to keep him and they would probably do everything in their power to do that. Um, so something to keep in mind, don't know if that will happen. Even if he wins hard to say, but the UFC, you know, my understanding is that they have played a lot of hardball with Nate and Nate's played some hardball with them too. Like it's been mutual in that way. But my understanding is of late that there has been a thawing of relations between the two camps, let's say, with the organization and Team Diaz. And that, especially very recently, there have been uh, a series of events that have taken place behind the scenes that would make one indicate that they would want to keep him. But the reality is, dude, I mean, if Nate beats fucking Hamzat, you know, the UFC could back up the Brinks truck and it might not matter because, you know, Again, folks, understand how the contract works. They would have, uh, for the moment that it expires, they'd have a 90-day exclusive negotiating period where Diaz couldn't negotiate with anybody else. And then after that, they would have roughly a year to match. So he could negotiate with whoever he wants at that point. They would have a year to match. Now, the caveat to that is they have that with everyone's contract, and they've never really exercised it. But, you know, Nate goes in there and beats Hamzat, however improbable, but let's just say he does it for the sake of argument. You mean to tell me they're just going to like let him go right away? I mean, they might. They might. But one wonders if they might, for the first time, try and match whatever anyone else did. I think they would try and match anything he could get from a Jake Paul fight. right? If he had a deal in, in place, let's say Jake Paul gets through the Anderson Silva fight, which, by the way, I, I'm of the belief that like Anderson Silva should not lose that contest and that Paul getting stretched is... Again, I don't know if that's the likeliest scenario because there's a lot of ways that fight could go, but is definitely on the table and on the table in more than such a way as like, well, it's possible. I would consider there to be a fair degree of probability to that. I, I think Jake has, we'll see how much growth he has had since the second Woodley fight, but I think he has, um, based on what I can surmise, I think he has taken on a level of difficulty that he, he can't handle. And doesn't seem to realize that, uh, but we, we shall see. I don't know that to be true, but we're talking about Nate. Like, let's imagine he gets a deal going with Jake. Jake gets through the silver fight for whatever that looks, but there's still massive, massive interest in a Nate Diaz versus Jake, uh, Jake Paul fight. So then they come up with a deal. They have to take that deal to UFC to see if the UFC can match it. You mean to tell me the UFC won't try to match that? Maybe they won't. They haven't done it yet. They've never, they've never exercised it, but they've got it in their back pocket. So um, there's a lot of ways this could go. There's a lot of ways this could go. Uh, Nate Diaz getting his freedom is probably the likeliest because I think he'll lose, and then that'll just be that. But we shall see. Uh, let's see. Let's try this one. Look, the group Outcast is already a legendary group, but do you think they would be bigger if it was Andre 3000 and Killer Mike instead of Andre and Big Boy? No. No, I don't think that. No. I like Killer Mike. I like Killer Mike a lot. Um, I've seen him in concert a few times. But uh, no. Mm -mm, no. Let's see. Let me get some ones I can get a good answer on. How about this one? what are the odds we ever see personalities like the Diaz brothers in the UFC again? It seems like the UFC brass learned a lesson, but also people who go against the establishment have all the information needed 
to justify staying away from the UFC. I don't think they would stay away from UFC, though. Like For the vast majority of these guys, the biggest money they can make is still going to be inside of UFC. The problem is just that the way in which they should still be making a lot more. The constraints of the industry make that make that their best option, but hardly the optimal outcome, right? So that's the issue. But no, I don't think you're going to see personalities like the Diaz brothers. Here's what you, like, I've been covering the fight game a long time, and, like, you know, think about all the trash talkers you've seen. Like, you know, for me, the three biggest ones that would stand out would be, like, Ricardo Mayorga and Chael Sonnen and then Conor McGregor. These are all, they're all trash talkers in their own way, but they're very different people. They're very different identities. They had very different careers. In the case of Mayorga, a different sport. And you're like, oh, how much shit did Mayorga talk? Dude, Mayorga told De La Hoya he was going to drink his wife's breast milk in front of him. Like, my man got salty on the microphone, okay? Um, What you have to realize is interesting new people will always come along in the funnel of life. They will be here. You will see all different kinds of folks come through and especially in MMA where it's just this Moss Eisley Cantina, this repository of crazy ass people. You're always going to see that. But the Diaz brothers, you just won't you and you'll see other brother tandems. You had Mark and Matt Hughes for a very short window. Uh, on the contender series, you had the Bonfim brothers who look like they're fucking amazing. I don't speak Portuguese, but who knows what they're like in, in their native language. But the point I'm trying to make here is you will see people like the Diaz brothers again, whether it's a brother tandem or people who are anti-establishment in that way, you are not going to see people like Nate Diaz in the very specific way he is ever again. Ever again. You have to appreciate people for who they are while they're here. That's why people say it. It's not cliche like, oh, they're around. Let's be nice to them. No, dude. You are not going to get people who are as uniquely beloved, iconoclastic, talented, cross-generational, regionally specific in all the things and all the ways the that, that anti-hero way that Nick and Nate have groomed an identity. There'll be other anti-heroes in the future, but they won't be like Nick and Nate, who also have incorporated into like sort of West Coast, you know, uh, street kind of gangster quality, right? They've got that kind of whole thing going as well. They are very, very unique in that regard. No, you won't see that again. You won't. You really won't. Now, and it's been this way, like whoever you like, whoever you out there you appreciate, make sure you appreciate them in a way that they can feel while they're doing what they're doing. Now, now is the time to appreciate them. It's a bit late even for Nick and Nate if you're just getting around to it, but you've got to appreciate people while they're here doing what they do. You will see trash talkers in the future. You will see anti-heroes in the future. And you might like those other trash talkers better. You might like those other anti-heroes better. Fine. But you're asking me, are we going to see people like the Diaz brothers? You'll see people like them You won't see people a whole lot like them. All the different unique eccentricities and everything else that they have in that weird package they put together, that's just them. That's just them. So, you know, um, like what you like and dislike what you don't. But to be very clear about all of this, uh, life will throw at you so many new things and. Uh, well, what I want to mean to say is 
there'll be this constant wave of new people and they will have been influenced by the people that came before them. So the, the types of things that you see from the Diaz brothers, the types of things that you like about them, you will see that reflected in future fighters, but the unique package and one of the ways in which they put it together, that will go when they go. And you probably won't see anything like that ever again. All right. With that in mind, let's try out this new feature, shall we? Let's see what we can get with the starred comments. All right. So if you want to leave a donation, you are certainly under no obligation to do so. But if you do, I will get to it and uh, I will put your question on the screen in the process. Right. And then I'll do a quick, um, fast, you know, rapid fire at the end here. All right. Very quickly. Let's go through these. So John asks, what do you make of Diaz's slurred speech over time? He seemed to be much more clear with his words. When he was younger, yes, before all of the brain trauma, he had clearer speech. I can't believe it. To answer your question, I don't think his speech has been well with Nick. It's, I don't know what quite the answer is with Nate. He still seems pretty lucid to me. I will also tell you that, like, in general, through aging, your speech capability can be compromised. I think I've noticed cognitively, mine's not nearly as good as it once was. Probably years of drinking as well. Who's to say? But, um, yeah, I would imagine that they had a clear way of speaking prior to 15 years of brain damage, yes. And we have to be very real about the costs of this sport. I don't know that it's reached a point that it's unintelligible. I don't think that's quite fair, but is it as pristine as it once was? No, not at all. Certainly not. Do you have any tips for people trying to get into the MMA podcast YouTube channel space? Obviously looking to get into that. Yes. Be different. You should do something very, very different. And that's a lo- that's very hard to understand until you really begin to see it. But it's okay to copy what, uh, and I mean this sincerely, if someone likes what I do, it's actually okay to copy what I do, but be sure as you copy it to put some kind of twist into it and then build on that twist. And more to the point, what you have to do is you have to look around and look at the spaces that people aren't covering. That's where your eye needs to have a detail for. Not, hey, can I, because I, back when writing was more prevalent, the biggest thing I used to get was people used to email me like, hey, look at my predictions for the weekend's fights. It's like, dude, I'm not reading this shit. Like, I'm sure your predictions are good. I don't in any way think my predictions are all that great. I'm sure your writing is good to decent. I'm sure your predictions are good to decent. But unless you're like fucking unbelievable, you're not sending me anything new. You're sending me nice writings with you're obviously you're a great fan. You watch a lot, and these are you know reasonably insightful picks. What about that is interesting? Any I, there's a lot of people on staff at all these various websites that can do that. You have to do something that they cannot do or that they don't do well enough. You could say, well, mine are even better, but they're only going to be marginally better. What you really have to do and figure out is what's a way in which I can present my content and I can present my ideas that other folks aren't doing, or at least at a bare minimum, aren't doing all that well. And you got to be really honest when I say all that well. you got to be very clear that you have a real value add to contribute. Why should someone pay attention to what you're doing? Because it's nice if they do, because you want them to, because you really like the way you write? Fine. You have to give them a reason. You, They have... 24 hours in a day, let's say they sleep eight. They've got 16 hours in a day, so now they work for another eight, nine hours. So now you've transferred that all that time down to just what? So what was I saying? They had 16 hours in, right, of uh, consciousness, and then you take nine from them, so they have seven free hours. And maybe they have to go to the gym, so that's another hour and a half. Right, so now we're down to five and a half. 
and then they want to watch their favorite movie that day because it came out on streaming. That's another two hours. Now they got three and a half hours. Then they want to go hang out with friends. That's another two hours. So you've got just a little bit of time. You have a little bit of time to capture someone's attention. What are you going to do that makes them go, aha, this is something I have to see. This is something I care about. It requires an understanding of MMA media and what they do, and then an understanding what they do, what they don't do. I'll be honest about my own limitation. Here's one thing that I have to recognize and I'm working around. This is true. When I first got on YouTube, most fighters weren't on it. And now there's a lot of fighters on it. DC's on YouTube, Bisping's on YouTube, Henry Cejudo, um, uh, Megan Anderson. I'm sure there's many more I'm not even considered yet. And so there's there's going to be a finite amount who are able to do it. Chael Sonnen's obviously on YouTube. They have encroached on the space that I had identified for myself maybe five to seven years ago, right? Where they're doing interviews with fighters. They've obviously got great analysis because they know, um, you know, they, they, I think Bisping's doing a live chat. These are all, this is all fair game. It's all fair game, right? So now I have to realize what can I do differently to, to capture a new audience and appeal. And there's a couple of things we're working on behind the scenes. One of which is getting back to the fight breakdowns, because I think I can do that in a way that not that they couldn't, but I think I can deliver the product in a way that I don't think that week over week they could, or that they're able to, or willing to, I should say is probably a better way to do it. Cause obviously their fight knowledge is great. You have to think like that. What is going on around me? Where can I contribute value? And how can I do it in a way where the, uh, the rest of the ecosystem, it's not accounted for. And not just different, like, oh, they don't do it this way. I'm going to. Different in a way where it's, I want that. I can do lots of things different that no one gives a shit about. It's just different for the sake of being different. You have to be different for the sake of being interesting. That's your task. All right, let's do this one. Uh, Andy writes, hi, Luke. I'm not sure how much longer Dana plans to stay around. Who do you think would be a good fit to replace him? I don't think Dana can be replaced. Not in the way that which you understand him. Dana cannot be replaced like, hey, we can just get another guy who can go and have the relationship with the media that he does and and be the sort of figure that he has been and all the things he's done to establish himself. Like a lot of it, UFC, it, it, they make it look like it's on autopilot. But what I mean to say is, dude, Dana used to have a much different job. I mean, he was going city to city, sitting in meetings with mayors, city council members, editorial boards. When he came to the uh, D.C., I know for a fact he had one with the sports department and then the editorial board where he was proselytizing MMA to any meaningful opinion leading audience he could. And this was like a passion. This was like, I mean, he was he was living unhealthy, trying to just go day after day, private jet after private jet. And it sounds glamorous and fun. That's backbreaking work. I think it affected his health and everything else in between. What, why do I bring this up? He doesn't really need to do that anymore, and he doesn't do that anymore. So replacing the current version of him is maybe perhaps a little easier. Who would it be? I don't know exactly. I think Chael Sonnen's probably the best at that, but I don't know if he's interested or if that would be a thing. But like the way Dana used to be, that guy is basically irreplaceable. irreplaceable. Um, and I think in the current version, do you need someone to do the more, you know, lighthearted version of what he's doing? You don't really need someone in that sense. I'm not saying Dana can just be fired tomorrow and the UFC wouldn't miss him, but I don't know that they would have to like, who are we going to do to find, you know, what are we going to do to find the replacement? It's a little bit easier to think about that now because it's not as important a need. It would have been nearly impossible 15 years ago. Justin writes, 
Why do people bring up the fourth and fifth round for Nate when he has no finishes in those rounds and has never won a fight that has gone five rounds? Again, we've been kind of over this a little bit. I think it's a lot of, you know, Diaz myths being spread about. But but I want to caution folks, this idea that he can't do shit in those times, that, you know, he's just as ordinary as he is any other time, I think is slightly misleading. Slightly. All right, who do we got here? From Finkster. Let's see. Given that they both seem to be stuck at second best in their divisions, how feasible might Colby versus Whitaker be? And who do you figure would be the victor? I don't know where Colby's at. I got to tell you, I got a high opinion of Robert Whitaker. I think Robert Whitaker could do really well, really well up at uh, at, at 185. Um, or this in this case, what am I saying, 185? Um, 170. Um, I mean, or Colby at 185. I think Whitaker might win. To be honest with you, I can't say that with full confidence, but he might be able to, dude. I think I think that'd be a very, very difficult fight for Colby. Very difficult. I mean, at distance, the real question is, could Rob keep him off of him, right? Um, if Rob can find a way to keep him off of him, like at distance, Rob would put him away. He would he wouldn't make it the full distance, right? I just don't think he would make it. But if he's on top of Rob, or at least at a bare minimum in boxing range, and Rob is covering and backing up, that's a different story. But I'd probably favor Rob to win that. Con- I mean, Rob is talented, very talented. Uh, my MK bomber jacket arrived today. Love it, high quality. Just wanted to shout it out, dude. I'm telling you, morningcombat.store. I'm not doing a bit. I bring home clothes all the time that work gives me. That's the one thing I brought home that my wife is like, damn, I love that thing. She likes the shirts. She likes the hoodies. Don't get me wrong. She doesn't shit on any of it. But the thing that she loved, the bomber jackets. And they're a little pricier. Save up for Christmas or whatever if you want one. But I'm telling you, they're good. Uh, From Preston Paranoid. Thank you for putting respect on Dan Hardy's name. He gets slept on by casuals as a fighter and an analyst. Bummer he's not on the broadcast anymore. He was in the PFL broadcast, which I thought he did a great job elevating. He should be on TV. This is just a reality about this is why like like folks are like why do you cover boxing? Dude, I've got more of an opportunity to get on TV and boxing than I ever do in MMA. Than I ever do. Most of all the jobs in MMA broadcasting, you have to be like a buddy of the promotion or a super famous fighter to have and I'm not that anywhere. <laughs> like, I do I think I could do some of those jobs? I I'd like to I'd like the opportunity to try, you know. Can't declare to you right up front that I'm the best guy for the job, but I think I could do okay. Um, but I won't even get a chance. I won't even get a chance. And like, if I can't get a chance, that's you might say, well, that's no big deal. But Dan Hardy, like, there's not a lot of opportunities for him. Now, I know he does cage wars, at least he used to do cage wars. I don't know if that's still a thing, but I heard him on the PFL, dude. He was fucking great. Dan, Dan's the man. You won't ever hear me say a bad word about Dan. I like Dan a lot. Uh, is there any way Nate stays in the UFC win or lose this weekend? Lose, no. Win. Very slight, but possible. I see you as a WWE fan there, Raphael. All right, let's go to Flavio. He says, hello, big fan. Can I get a shout-out? It's my birthday. Well, there you go, Flavio. Feliz cumpleaños. Uh, Okay. I don't know if this is a bullshit person. Oh, the UFC translator. That's his name? Fabiano Busquet? Dude, I've been dying to get an interview with this guy. 
I had my wife listen to his Spanish. Even she was impressed. And she's like, oh, this is the Spanish translator? I'm like, no. No, this is the Portuguese and Spanish translator. This motherfucker is amazing. Yeah, I would, dude, I would love to. Love to. You know what? I'm going to make a note of that, too. Here, I'm going to make a freaking note about it. Um, Busque. There we go. Yeah, dude, that guy is amazing. That guy's amazing. All right. Let's go to... Ian says, could y'all do an RSD the old way as a Patreon podcast and have it not officially tied to MK and Showtime? That may save everyone from the legal backlash. We have talked about it. We have talked about it. All it takes is for someone to take whatever we say, and if it's irreverent enough, republish it publicly and then we're fucked so and the other part is like do we want to ask fans for money i mean i realize i'm doing it here but i don't want to do it here and do it somewhere else that's the point right it's again it's possible it's possible um but it's not as easy as you think and the warnings we got were real from very powerful people (laughs) like the kind where if you were us you'd be like oh okay all right uh, Luke, for the newer fans, can you break down the impact and reputation of the DS brothers, especially Nick at the height of their activity, 2006 to 13? Um, it's a the impact and reputation of the Diaz brothers. Well, they, I mean, everyone's kind of done this already. Sorry, my back's a little still tweaked. Um, they were... They were always seen as guys worthy of respect. I think even people who didn't like them had respect for what they could do in the octagon or on the mat, right? So they always kind of like you would never hear like Militich talk shit about them, you know, or anyone from that camp talk shit about them because they always kind of knew that like, and obviously, you know, Robbie got his lights put out by Nick. But um, so they always had like that, uh, the respect. Um, I think they got seen by a lot of people as malcontents in the industry for a long time. Um but they also kind of got seen as people who were misunderstood by a lot of folks, especially Nick. I think Nick was largely misunderstood for a very long time and suffered like part of the reason Nick suffered. I mean, he had again, and that suffering sort of set up this for for Nate Diaz anti-hero, but for Nick, similar kind of anti-hero sort of vibe, um, iconoclast and maybe a better way to put it in his case. But um, you have to imagine at that time, they didn't want Diaz brothers like heroes. Here's one lesson I can help you with. Post Ultimate Fighter, the UFC really wanted someone like George St. Pierre. And you can understand why. First of all, George St. Pierre was amazingly talented. That's the first thing I'd say. The other part that you could say about him was that he had a squeaky clean image. Remember something, Frank Mir lost a commentary gig when he said he wanted to kill Brock Lesnar. He was really good for the WEC, but he lost that gig at that time. Now you've got Hamzat saying, I'll kill everybody, and they put it in the in the promo for UFC 279. They don't give a shit anymore because MMA is in a different place. Post-Ultimate Fighter, there was still a lot of people who didn't know what MMA was. It wasn't legalized everywhere. There was a, The media barely covered it. There was a lot of just you know apprehension about it. And so what they wanted was someone like St. Pierre who could wear a suit to the press conference, who spoke French. Yes, it was broken English, but, you know, had this really polished, buttoned-up image. And they wanted to talk about how, you know, Chuck Liddell looks crazy with the Mohawk, but did you know he has an accounting degree from Cal Poly or whatever, right? And Rich Franklin was a math teacher. They wanted you to think that they were more sheep, not wolves. 
then MMA got popular enough and ubiquitous enough that that stopped being a real concern. You didn't have to like, you know, very carefully curate who your heroes were. And I think Nate grew up with a lot and Nick too, with a lot. They came up in an era where they were never going to be the promotion's first choice because even late into 2013, UFC, Strike Force 2, Strike Force obviously made Nick a champion and he was really good for them and it worked out in that way, but there was that brawl and stuff. Like and that that was terrible for their image. You know, they were sort of seen as those guys. What we need are the St. Pierre exemplars and what they were were the black t-shirt wearing middle finger, you know, gangster guys. But it turned out that like you can't beat fan sentiment. And there was a lot of fan sentiment that was angry or dismissive of the Diaz's for a while too. But over time, what people came to see is the method in their madness and their heroism and their struggle and in their sacrifice. And again, the respect in their abilities as well. But the reason why they were kind of pushed to the side was for that. Post Ultimate Fighter boom, UFC wanted, I mean, they, and they would, you know, they wanted Brock Lesnar frothing at the mouth too. But to go and to build in the way which I was talking about Dana going and speaking to editorial boards and whoever else he could, they wanted heroes they could sell to a very skeptical public. And the Diaz brothers at that time were not those people. But now that MMA is so entrenched in the firmament of just general sports, guys, I think, are much more able to be heroes to different audiences in all kinds of unique and different new ways. And the Diaz brothers helped create that possibility as well. All right, let's go to, let's see, Jamie says, first impressions of Tiago Santos going to the PFL. Uh, I guess that's breaking news. Um, probably better for him, but I think he's going to have a rough run down there. I don't think that's going to be nearly as easy as he thinks, but I certainly applaud him for doing it. Luke, will you extend your investigation of Facebook societal harm to other institutions like pharma? Or can they not be criticized? Yeah, sure. Are we going to sit here and really argue that big pharma is beyond reproach? <laughs> I mean, they make life-saving drugs uh diabetics would be in much dire straits without them fair enough but like you know the Sackler family for example which is not quite the same as big pharma but you know uh, aligned powerful families yeah sure sure but who's the big pharma bro that's training mma that the fans are welcoming in i mean this is my point oh i don't want to take a the um, COVID vaccine because it's all bad, which is just total bullshit, but whatever. It's not for me. Fine. It's not for you. Whatever. I'm not going to have relitigate that. It's not for you. But you mean to tell me if the CEO of Pfizer was, you know, or Moderna or something was a big MMA guy and was like tweeting about it. Everyone would be like, yeah, this guy's fucking great. Actually. I mean, that's, that's how I see everyone doing this bullshit with Mark Zuckerberg. I don't see it any differently. Like, which is it guys? You against tech oligarchs or not? Are you against the leaders of pharmaceutical companies or are you not? You know, I, I don't see anyone doing that. Now, again, I don't see any pharma guys involved in that business, but you get the idea. All right. From K says tickets for UFC 281 are ridiculous. 611 for the 300 level. Jesus. Any plans for a live MK and NYC event for the cause? I'm not paying for that. Yes, that we have plans for one. We haven't formally set it up yet, but we have plans for one, yes. And by the way, we were going to take our kid, my daughter, we were going to take her to a Carlos Vives concert. You probably Most of you don't know who that is. You don't need to know. 
a very, very famous Colombian singer. Uh, if you've seen the movie Encanto, he has the theme song. Um, Colombia te quiero tanto. That's him, right? Um, his tickets were per person for like bullshit seats. They were like 260 a pop. I'm like, I'm not, what the fuck? I'm not paying for this. Plus it's a Zumba class with that motherfucker anyway. He barely even sings. All right. As someone who is in love with the sport of MMA and seemingly doesn't fit the political consensus of most people who follow the sport, how do you deal with that? I tend to feel the same in this sense. I have, uh, well, you have to realize that your views don't matter and no one is entitled to listen to a fucking thing you say, number one. Uh, number two, if there is a reason, or excuse me, if, if, if most people in the sport don't share your views, there's probably a reason why those kinds of people are attracted to the sport. Um, I would also argue that the other folks need to be more considerate of the idea that like, there's a diversity of people who do like it, but, um, how do I deal with it? I, before I used to be much more willing to kind of try and impose my worldview on things. And I think when relevant, I will try, but. I have been much more accepting of the idea that like I'm more of a guest in their world than the opposite. And I try to find the value in what every fighter can do and what their abilities are. And I try to make the conversation largely about that. And then when there are situations that I think are just morally heinous, like when Kamzat Shumayev has a relationship with Ramzan Kadyrov, I think the audience deserves to know about it. And then they can make whatever judgment they want to make about it. But what you really have to realize is... Um, The world doesn't owe you th if if what you really need are activities where your worldview is supported, then maybe MMA is not for you. And I'm not even saying that like as an asshole thing or that you should go. That's not what I'm saying. Like I think there needs to be all kinds of different groups who like MMA. I think it'll make MMA better. To be honest with you, um, if from a recruiting athlete standpoint, if for no other reason. But in general, like the more people that like MMA, the better. I think that's I think that's generally true. But if what you really need is your worldview spat back to you for you to be happy, then it's not for you. I don't need that. I don't need that. It'd be nice. It'd be nice, but I don't need that. All right, let's go to, oops. Uh, let's try this one from Tricks. Would you say Nate's BJJ is a bit overrated being that it's almost never utilized, save for a couple of big wins? Yeah, same question about me. Yes, you tell me what you think I am. But to answer the question about Nate, um, I don't think he has like crazy attacking jujitsu, at least not an attacking jujitsu mindset. But do I think he has good jujitsu when he needs it? Like, yeah, he's got very good jujitsu. His guard is excellent. His he doesn't make a lot of mistakes on the ground when as it relates to jujitsu. He's got good back attacks uh, when he, again, when he goes after them. It's just that he doesn't seem to be orienting his offense through it. It seems to be like, oh, it's an opportunity to use it. I will, much like the Conor McGregor fight, something like that. Like, remember, who, who took that fight to the ground? Conor. Same with the Jim Miller fight. Who shot uh, in that fight? Was it Jim Miller or was it Nate Diaz? It was Jim Miller. Jim Miller shot in that fight. So keep that in mind. Uh, just someone here saying thanks. Thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Let's see. What do we got here? Uh, from Zach. Hey, LT, big fan from Algeria. Want to ask since you're a fellow Army guy. Not an Army guy. Do you have special love for fighters who were in the Army? Ryan Stan was not in the Army. He was in the Marine Corps. Uh, Benoit Saint-Denis. Thanks and stay frosty. 
Got to tell you, if they were in the Air Force, I don't really give a shit. <laughs> they, the, the, I have no relationship to the Air Force at all. I'm not even bagging on the Air Force, but like, do I like feel kinship over guys who served in like even the fucking Navy? Like, not really, not really. Unless they were in the Marine Corps, I don't really give a fuck. Uh, Brian Stan, obviously, I share a kinship with Kyle Stewart, um, who fights for Bellator. Same thing, because um, they, you know, he was an 0311. He was a fucking grunt. Um, yeah, like those bubbas for sure. But like, oh, I was an admin guy in Fort Eustis for the army. Like, I, th this means nothing to me. No. <laughs> I'm going to put this up just because it's funny. Luke, does MK really need BC? <laughs> Find him quite annoying. I think the MK brand would be better with someone else. No, I'm not a hater. Sir, you might be. You might be. Uh, I could never imagine doing that show with anybody else, nor would I even want to try. Um, he's the man. Oh, and by the way, big thanks to this dude for the super sticker. Thanks, Joseph. I appreciate it. All right. So here's what we're going to do. I want to know what you think about this whole thing. Whoops. Add to stream. I want to know, excuse me, about this. Did you like this whole thing where I went back and forth? Did you like it when I showed the questions on screen for the live, for the, um, for the uh, paid portion of the chat. Did you like that kind of thing? Let me know. So you can shoot me an email, lukethomasnews at gmail.com. You can leave a comment below. Do you want to see more of this kind of thing? Because if you like it, I'll keep doing it. If not, we can go back and do something else. But I really want to make this a more dynamic viewing experience for you. Yeah, that's what I really hope to do. Okay? So I appreciate you guys watching. Thank you so much. Thumbs up. This will be on podcast up tonight. You can catch it Friday morning if you don't want to, however the hell you want to get it. And uh, I'm just so grateful for you guys. I'll be back. Uh, oh, I'm going to do a Tuesday live chat because it's going to be the UFC's. Uh, um, it'll be post, uh, post what you call it, pay-per-view. And you can catch me Monday, 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 Monday. I'm going to be at the Jake Paul Anderson Silver Presser. Plus, you might have a very special RSD that day. Hmm, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see how things go. But lots of good stuff coming your way. So thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. Oh, quick rapid fire. I almost forgot. I'll do like I'll do like one or two real quick, real quick. Let's see which one has. Oh, here we go. Uh, Luke, you said Tui needs a new part of his game in order to reach the next level. Could conditioning be that element that he needs? Could be. I don't know if that's. I think it's more skill development. Uh, what happens if Jake Paul somehow loses his next boxing fight and how it affects Nate's future? It could blow everything up completely. I don't think folks are really wrap their brains around that. That's a real possibility. Uh, let's see. If Chemayev can't finish Nate in the first round, does Nate KO him in the fourth? No. Or again, at least highly unlikely. Um, let's see. we got an eight one here. Luke, when did rankings or win streaks become less important in the UFC? Because it seems almost any fighter who can talk on the mic or have it a style Dana likes, they get bigger fights. That's always been the case. The rankings have somewhat slowed it, but that's been the case since day one. And we'll do one more for fun. Oh, here we go. Feel free not to answer. Do you think you will have another child? I have a two-year-old and my wife and I are considering keeping it at one child. We're tired as hell. And she's the perfect kid. What are your thoughts on one versus multiple kids? People tell us to have another one. We might adopt. We might adopt. My wife's 44. And so there are some health risks associated both with the, the child and the mother when they get to that age in terms of natural childbirth um, and, and the pregnancy itself. And uh, we live in a place, obviously, where, you know, um, women can still get health care in the way that they should be able to get health care, which is not possible in every state. But uh, in general, I don't know that we want to risk it for her health or anyone else's. I think we might adopt as a possibility. All right. All right. So there you go. 
that's it for me. Appreciate you guys watching. Give me some feedback. Let me know what you liked. Let me know what you didn't like. Let me know what else you want to see. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com or just leave a comment below. And until next time, stay frosty, friends.